We're going to be reading together just before Tim comes up and shares with us from Luke chapter 23. And Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 50. Now, um, this, uh, this takes place after the death of the Lord Jesus upon the cross. Luke chapter 23, and the words should come up on the screen there. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Morning, everybody. Great to see you. My name's Tim Chilvers, one of the leaders here, and it is brilliant to have you here. If you're here for the first time, uh, we hope you feel, feel at home amongst us. Uh, we are one gathering here. We've had one gathering before at half past nine. There's another gathering happening over at Bourneville uh, this morning. Word of Hands, our community who speak in British Sign Language, gathering this morning. There's also a, a community group gathering over at Alum Rock uh, this morning and today, doing some work for the community there. So lots happening, but we're one community in different places and so it's a joy to be together with you uh, this morning. We're going to pray together as we come uh, to the Bible. We're in the beginning, oh, no, we're actually in the middle of a series called When the End is the Beginning. In life, endings are often beginnings. Painful though they are, 
endings can be beginnings and it's certainly true in the Bible as we look at the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts written by the same person all about the ending of Jesus's life and of course the beginning of all that follows after that uh, as we'll come on to it so the end is the beginning but let's pray together asking that God would help us that by his spirit he would be our teacher this morning and speak to us that we'd be changed people let's pray Father, we thank you so much that you are God. You know everything about us. You've given everything for us. And Lord, we long to hear your voice now. So be our teacher, we pray. We're listening, Lord. Speak change give hope where that is needed Father we pray this in Jesus name Amen so not long to go everyone's talking about the election everywhere you turn if you're anything like me getting a bit tired of it by now not long but still a couple of weeks to go And my Twitter feed got interesting this week because somebody into all of that mix introduced Jesus to the political mix. Here it is, Tom from London. If Jesus were alive, he would be branded a dangerous extremist and would be a strong supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. And as is the way with Twitter, some people agreed and some people disagreed. Some people agreed strongly and some people disagreed strongly back and forth, back and forth before the names started flying and so on until, until. Uh, Helpfully, the political journalist Robert Hutton, who you may know of, made a subtle but important point. Here it is. He offers a professional tip for somebody who does Twitter a lot and who is a pro at all these sort of things. Here's his tip. Pro tip, when you're going for the Christian vote, don't start tweets, if Jesus were alive. You can have your discussions about which political party Jesus may favour or which politician is currently uh, a flavour of the month with the Lord, but that phrase, if Jesus was alive, is not how to begin the discussion with Christians. It's a familiar phrase, isn't it? Pops up often. If Jesus was alive, he would endorse the things I endorse, of course. But let's get to the heart of it, because right at the heart of that phrase is obviously something very important. If Jesus was alive, and of course we know what people mean, but there's an assumption in this saying, isn't there, that Jesus is just like any other religious ruler teaching good stuff that should have an influence on our lives today and if we follow his ways then you know good things will happen and we might have favor with the almighty and all that just like any religious system or worldview but of course the central heartbeat of Christianity as we've already sung is so different from that that it isn't like any other religious system any other worldview 
It's not about the things we do at all. Now, the central heartbeat of Christianity is not if Jesus was alive. It's, of course, as Jesus is alive today. And it's this claim that sets Christianity apart from anything else. That Jesus did live, that Jesus did die, and then astonishing that Jesus did come back to life. That's the central heartbeat. Not about a list of teaching, a list of doctrines, a list of ideas, a church that's kind of making a difference. All things important, but no. The unique, world-changing, death-defying difference of Christianity is that as Jesus is alive today, it makes the world of difference. And if he isn't alive, well, then we can easily pack up home. It's a nice day. We should go home, as the Bible makes very clear. Because Paul, writing to a church in Corinth, said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus isn't, hasn't been raised, my job is pointless. In fact, many of my friends think so. <laughs> but not only that, it's not just about our preaching is in vain. Look, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's nonsense if Christ hasn't been raised because you're still in your sin. If Jesus isn't alive, we are wasting our time. It's nice to be with you, but I'm out of here, is what Paul is saying. That's the central claim of Christianity. And so we can have all sorts of good discussions about Christianity, about this and different things and different perspectives and different discussions and what it might mean for our world and try to convince others about certain doctrines or certain morality or certain aspects. But according to the Bible, this is the thing. It centers on Jesus' resurrection. And so here this morning, if you've got questions about Christianity... Start here. Or it might be that you're here this morning and you have struggles in your faith. You'd call yourself a Christian, but you're not sure. Or you've got struggles with church. Or you've got struggles with certain aspects of Christian doctrine or certain aspects of Christian living. And your faith is a bit wobbly and so you're wondering about just jacking it all in. Well, the Bible would say, start here. Let me illustrate. I don't know if you know who this uh, woman is. Uh, she is somebody called Anne Rice. Uh, she's a famous author, written a number of books, uh, mainly focusing on vampires. The Vampire Chronicles, you may know if you're into that sort of thing, including the famous Queen of the Damned, and the international bestseller Interview with a Vampire, which many will have heard of a film made of it. A number of years ago, she stunned the literary world when she swapped vampire books for a book about Jesus. It became clear she was now a follower of Christ. An amazing transformation from talking about things of the night to things of the light. And she got on the circuit. She was a, quote, famous Christian now. Invited to all the chat shows, did all the stuff. But then a few years later, she famously said these words. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. 
It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. And I guess if we're honest, some of us have sympathy with her that we're struggling with certain aspects of church or certain aspects of Christian living and certainly whether we're not, some of our friends will be and they think of Christianity and they think of all this other stuff. Well, the liberating reality is this is the thing. The resurrection of Jesus is the deal. Christian faith doesn't stand or fall on the strength of the church or the interpretation of certain Christian doctrine or how moral we may be or the impact we have on the society or how well we pray. Christianity is about something that has happened, friends. As one author makes clear, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything. So start there. So for the rest of our time, I'm gonna briefly give a few reasons why I think it's believable and then why I think it makes such a difference today from this passage. And the first reason is clear. It's believable because it was astonishing then. You see, people today rightly say that the resurrection of Jesus is hard to believe. And the argument goes that it's difficult to believe because after all, people generally don't rise from the dead. And so the reality must be that in the ancient world, they didn't know what we know now. They were a little more simple with us. We didn't have the science or the medical background and so on. And so either he wasn't really dead or they just kind of made it up to spill a yarn because they were sad. The logic's simple. People don't come back to life, and so there must be another reason for it all. And just back then, they didn't know any better. The resurrection is hard to believe. It is. But it was hard to believe then, too. Look at the response of the disciples that Mark has read to us. The women go and discover, and they go back to the disciples, and then they, and what's the reaction of the disciples? They did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. They were astonished and they didn't believe it, frankly. So if we have difficulty to believe the resurrection, so did they. That's why it's remarkable. And so the response is that the first Christians, therefore, just made it up because they were upset or they wanted it to be true. But again, the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. You'll notice who the first witnesses were? Women. Many of you will know that in that culture, the testimony of women was not valid. They were not believed. And so therefore, if you're gonna make something up, you don't tell somebody to talk about it who won't be believed. Because after all, they wouldn't be believed. And so therefore, that's not the way to make something up. You give credible witnesses. So it was astonishing then, they didn't believe it. It wouldn't have got off the ground unless there was something to it, which is the second aspect. So it was astonishing then, but also it was believed then. You see, the author, Luke, is writing quite a clear account here, making a pretty clear case of what he thinks happened after looking at the eyewitnesses and all that. 
And do you notice these words right at the beginning of what was read to us? Listen out. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who'd not consented to their decision and action in killing Jesus and so on. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. If you're going to make something up, you don't make it checkable. (laughs) And here is a guy, everyone who knew where the tomb was, who had the body, and he even went to the government to talk about it with them. All things that can be checked, can be verified. But even more than that then, listen to these words, famous, famous words. As Paul writes to a church in Corinth, who of course weren't in Jerusalem, so didn't see what was happening. And he says these words, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Fine, you might say, great, they can spin a yarn. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Two things from that. He appeared to more than 500 people at a time, most of whom are still alive. And of course, the reality is this, it's inviting us so you can speak to them. If you're going to make something up, you don't make it checkable. But what Paul is saying, these people are still here. They physically saw him themselves in reality. You can go and talk to them. Not just some theory, an invitation to explore. But even more than that, the astonishing thing, do you notice who else he appeared to? Then he appeared to James. I have a brother. I know that my brother is not the Messiah. And I'm guessing if you've got a sibling, you know that your sibling is not the Messiah either. Because we know all the flaws, all the faults, all the weaknesses, all the things they get wrong. I love my brother dearly. He is flawed. He would say the same thing about me, I'm sure. Here you have James, Jesus's brother. And if you know anything about James, he went on to become the Bishop of Jerusalem, the head of, if you like, the founding church. And he was murdered for believing that Jesus was alive. Now here's the reality. Would I die for, no, for claiming that my brother was alive when he died? No. Would I die and be willing to give everything to face opposition and persecution for claiming that my brother was the Messiah? Of course not, because I know he's not. And yet James knew different. Real people, real places, real claims, inviting people to check it out. Something changed then. The point, of course, is this. It was difficult to believe then, and it's difficult to believe now, but they did believe it then, and so therefore there's an invitation for us to center everything on this. The early church grew, not because of good living, not because of good claims about getting right with God, but because they had a message, Jesus is Lord. 
and down through history as we sang earlier as the creeds churches all across the planet all throughout history I believe in you I believe you rose again I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord not was Lord has been Lord is Lord and I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again this is the thing this is the deal so what do you do with that then what difference does it make in our lives today in 21st century Birmingham? Well, the one thing that you can't do is ignore it. <laughs> I love Peter's response. They didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. The one thing you can't do, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, this sounds incredible, I'm not sure. The one thing you can't do is just say, never mind and then carry on as though life is the same. Peter's response is right. Go and check it out. He wanted to investigate for himself. We run things like Alpha. We'd love to have a chat further with you. Do check it out. But also, if you're here and you are a follower of Christ, and you're struggling a little bit in your faith, you're struggling with church, or certain aspects of Christian teaching, or certain understandings of bits of the Bible. Don't get yourself tied up in knots about that. Start here. Everything is different as a result of this. And for these last few minutes, I'm going to suggest four ways that this makes a radical difference to your life and my life now, today. And the first difference it makes is this. The fact that Jesus beat death takes away despair in death. I love this quote from Michael Lloyd. Because of the resurrection, the grave is no longer a place of despair, but a bed of hope. I'm going to leave that quote up for a while. Now it's important to notice something, isn't it? <coughs> Jesus' resurrection does take away despair, and we'll come on to that but it doesn't take away the ache or the pain and the devastating grief of death. Despair is hopeless. But death, grief, pain, sadness is very real, isn't it? And we can easily have good intentions of trying to bypass the pain and the reality of grief and just get to the hope bit, which we'll get to. But let's linger for a while. I don't know if any of you have seen this book. This book's a guy called, uh, by a guy called Nicholas Waterstorff called Lament for a Son. If you've never read this, I would say this is one of the single best Christian books I've ever read beyond the Bible. It's a beautiful book. Written by a professor of philo philosophical theology. I don't know if you can get your mouth around that. But it's a, not an academic book in any way. It's a personal lament for him when they lost their young son, Eric. And it's an honest, poetic, beautiful lament. Let me read to you his words. I did not grieve as one who has no hope, yet Eric is gone here and now. He's gone. Now I cannot talk with him. Now I cannot see him. Now I cannot hug him. Now I cannot hear of his plans for the future. That is my sorrow. 
A friend said to me, remember he's in good hands. And I was deeply moved, but that reality does not put Eric back in my hands now. That's my grief. For that grief, what consolation can there be other than having him back? And then he goes on to talk about how we respond to grief and sadness. What do you say to someone who is suffering? Some people are gifted with words of wisdom. For some, for those, so those kind of people, we're profoundly grateful. There were many for us. But not all of us are gifted in that way. Some blurted out strange, inept things, and that's okay too. Your words don't have to be wise. Or, or perhaps even a, an embrace, not even the best of words, can take away pain. And then this is the thing. Please, please, don't say it's not really so bad. Because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there, you're of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. And I have to say, after sharing this, uh, this uh, the 9.30 service, someone came up to me afterwards and how yesterday she was in Sainsbury's in the checkout and the person in front of her was paying, had a phone call, was on the phone call and then started sobbing. And so this person here this morning, uh, when she put the phone down, said, sorry, uh, don't mind, I noticed. Can I ask if I can help in any way? And she said her mum had just died. And she was able, in that moment, to very simply, very gently stand with her and pray with her. She had no words to kind of give answers. But as a result, that woman was immensely grateful that there was somebody stood with her in her pain. Friends, the reality of the resurrection doesn't take away the pain of grief. Yes, death has lost its sting, but there's still a bite. We can't quickly wash over that. In our society, when we do all we can to avoid death, even by shrink wrapping our meat so that we dare not believe we had to kill an animal for it, <laughs> there is pain in death. But the reality of the resurrection is that there isn't despair in death. There is hope. There is a day when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, no more death. That makes all the difference. I remember sitting at the bedside a few years ago with someone who was in her dying hours. There we were in the hospice. I was sat by her, a woman in her 40s, holding her hand. Having chatted with her family, we were going to pray. And I prayed very simply and I, I, for her and then I talked with her and I said, Kate, none of, you, none of us have been where you're about to go. We don't know what it's like, but I do know it's better to go there with Jesus. And if you want to go there with Jesus, just squeeze my hand. And then feeling this gentle squeeze of her hand in her unconsciousness. Of course, I have no idea whether that was just brain electrons or whatever doing stuff. I don't know. But what I do know 
is that the hope of resurrection changed everything for that family. And my guess is for people in this room right now who are grieving those they love, resurrection changes everything. For those in this room right now who are waiting for hospital results, the reality that Jesus beat death changes everything. For those of us who love people and we do not know what their future holds, because to be honest, it's looking like a downward trajectory, the resurrection changes everything. For those of us who have disability in our world and we see the empty ache of bodies, the resurrection changes everything. For those of us who have mental despair and we long for it to be different, the resurrection changes everything. This is the thing, friends. This changes everything. There is hope. The grave is no longer a place of despair, but a bed of hope. It's the first thing, the difference it makes. The second difference, it of course changes our response to Jesus. We've said it already, not going to dwell on it, but if you're wondering about Jesus or you're exploring Christianity or to be honest, you're not sure, you've, you'd say you've got a slightly wobbly faith or there's bits about the church or bits about certain doctrine or whatever that are just confusing you and tangling you up in knots. The hope of the resurrection changes everything. Start there. Just cling on to that. Don't walk away from that because of how a church has acted or whatever. That's the thing. And therefore, if Jesus did rise from the dead, then all of us need to look at our lives and say, Jesus, wow, whatever, I'm with you. Because eternity is with you. The third thing we've already mentioned, it changes how we fear death. So common, isn't it, as you look through the Gospels and see how the writers describe the events around Jesus' death and his resurrection. The disciples were scared. And the amount of times we hear, do not be afraid, do not fear. And friends, for those of us who have death in our world, it may not take away the pain, but the resurrection means we have nothing to fear. There is hope. And finally, as we come into land, the reality of Jesus' resurrection, that he did come back to life and offers that for us, that reality takes the pressure off all of us to succeed in life. In, the, in the John's first letter in the Bible, we read these words. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Who is it that overcomes the world? only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus himself said these words, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We live in a world of success and achievement, don't we? Where in our jobs, we're constantly analyzed. And so we're left with, if we could do this better, if we could work harder, if we could do that more, then we'll be okay. In our relationships, if we're married, we're continually trying to improve our relationships, continually trying to improve our partner. If you just did this, this would be better. And so husbands need to be better, wives need to be better. In our families, if only you did that better. In our friendship groups, if only you were more like this. When we go to the gym, if only my body was more buff. 
If only when I looked in the mirror, I didn't have those wrinkles. If only I had a nip and a tuck here. If only I was better, more successful, harder, stronger. More, more, more. In other words, we're never enough. We've got to be more successful. And as a result, all around us, people are working and we're walking around in these days because they have nothing more. They can't be more successful. We can't do more, try harder, prepare more. The beautiful reality is into that, Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. You will have trouble. Things are not gonna go the way you want it to. Take heart, I've overcome. You don't need to be more successful, better, more, harder. Take heart, I've overcome the world and I felt as we come to a close for some of us we just need to hear those words with the overwhelming pressure we feel to be different hearing Jesus' gentle words take heart I've overcome the world so that we can simply say Jesus if you've beaten death I'm with you my hand's in yours lead me forwards Lord as we open our lives to him in the power of his resurrection. Let's pray together. In a moment, we're gonna respond as the band lead us. But I guess that for some of us, this morning we've had our eyes just lifted a little bit to the beautiful, haunting center that Jesus is alive. And therefore, with trembling, we begin to lift our eyes to him and say, Jesus, I'm with you. Lead me. And this morning as we pray, Jesus says to you, take heart. I've overcome the world. And for those of us who are wounded with sadness or with fear, Jesus says, take heart. I've overcome the world. And for those of us who are not sure where we're at with Jesus, if we're honest, things are a bit of a mess, questions all around, Jesus simply says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Thank you that that same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in us for those who follow Christ. Lord, show us what that means, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.